and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. And I'm Steve Edelman. Hey, Steve. Great to see you. We're going <laughs> to talk new about year. sports today. Happy New Year? No. Oh, happy February. We're going to talk about go. tennis today. Isn't that exciting? Um, tennis is a sport that I think neither of us are especially fluent in. And, you know, it's winter here, but you know where it's not winter? Where, Danielle? Australia. <laughs> so cool. we have really special guests here uh, representing the Australian Open, and they're going to talk to us about that event that, that just concluded at the end of January and all the cool things that they do. So uh, I'm going to toss first to Lee Rosk. If you'd go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us what your role is. Well, thank you, Danielle. Um, and welcome to everybody listening. Um, so my name is Lee Ross. I am the Head of uh, Safety Compliance and Emergency Management uh, for Tennis Australia, who are the, um, the hosts of the Australian Open, one of the four Grand Slams. So um, been in and around tennis a long, long time, and I've just ticked over my 16th AO. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can get lots of Yeah, so it's been a long time, <laughs> but, but very, very good all the, all the same. And we're also joined by Martin Luters. Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us what your role is. Uh, good morning uh, from here. Uh, my, I'm a team leader with uh, the safety team, which is a team that um, during the AO stretches to around about 16 or 18 people in total. Um, but during the build phase, we run a smaller team. Um, but my role extends from early October through till um, today. The day of recording is actually my last day. Um, for this AO um, and ready to roll around for next year. Awesome. So we caught you guys in the, the rest and recovery end of the cycle. Um, so again, thank you for joining us, especially people tend to be sort of tired and burnt out by the, the tail end of these things. Uh, so the Australian Open runs, what, 15 days in January? Yeah, it's yeah? Um, we, we operate off of what they internationally what they call the tennis cycle. So we will always conclude the Australian Open on the last Sunday of January, um, typically. For this year, we, we commenced the Australian Open on or around the 8th uh, with some qualifying events. So there's a week of qualifying that operates Monday through to Thursday. Uh, and then we have a few, uh, we have a Friday up our sleeve just in case for inclement weather, the tournament doesn't run to timeline. It's an outside event. Uh, and then we commence this year on the Sunday. We historically we've started on the Monday, um, and it will run for what is now 15 days. So uh, you know, gates at 10 a.m. We finish up about one hour after the post or end of play, which sometimes can run into the wee hours of morning. So kind of 24 hours a day almost is what it sounds like. Yeah, it would it would be unusual. By the time we get to the yeah, well, that's right. It would, it would be unusual for us um, over the course of the 15 days to get out any earlier in the evenings, say 1 a.m. Um, so we have a couple of crews that work a sort of day shift and a night shift. Um, and for people like myself, we, we tend to live there almost. Um, so, yeah, look, it's a, long, it's a long what was historically a 14-day tournament, now 15-day tournament, um, which brings us in line with one of the other Grand Slams, which operate over the 15-day block, which is the French Open. Um, the U.S. Open and Wimbledon still operate over a 14-day block. So um, part of the reason why this year we went to 15 days and extended it out was because of, um, you know, weather impacting on the event. 
uh, and thus our ability to be able to schedule those matches uh, in the fourteen days and get through the get through the draw. So, so it's, about um, how many matches do you have in those fourteen to fifteen days? So the, over the course of the fifteen days, it's about three hundred sixty matches that are held, and that's a combination of men's and women's singles draws, which is your mm-hmm. normal one hundred and twenty players who qualify both on the men's and the women's draw. But we also and, have. And Okay. And I assume it's multiple sites, like all spread over the country or in one particular no, city? All in Melbourne, all housed at, or all the matches are played at Melbourne Olympic Parks, which is um, about, for you in, in your language, about a mile from the CBD of Melbourne. So it's right now in the heart of the sporting precinct here in Victoria. Um, so now all of the matches we would need to get through at Melbourne Park over the course of that 15 days. And it doesn't just uh, look at, um, men's and women's singles matches. We obviously got doubles matches, mixed doubles matches, legends matches, juniors, wheelchair quads. So there's a whole range of um, tournaments within the tournament, if you want to say it that way, uh, that we need to get through. So, all right. So now we have a so we have an idea of what a gigantic project this is. And uh, Martin already mentioned that it starts planning operations in October for an event in January. So we all have an understanding of the time commitment. Um, so when you are planning, what are what are some of the big things that you look out for? And I'm gonna go ahead and assume that weather is one of them, but you can you can agree. <laughs> there are so many things that we plan for. I mean uh, look, I mean yes the planning operationally sort of commences in October, but a lot of the body of the work is done throughout the, the course of the year. So um, we'll go back uh, next week and we'll start to debrief more heavily on the AO that's just happened, what worked, what didn't work. Um, one of the things that the Australian Open's always been quite renowned for is it isn't just a tennis event. It is an event within an event. So, um, yes, we have some 340 matches that we play and we go through the draw and what is broadcast to the world is ultimately the, the Grand Slam in itself. But we have four days of rock concerts, which not, most people wouldn't know about, where we actually convert one of the arenas in the second week into a, into a, um, to a concert stage. We have an area set aside at Melbourne Park, which is all about um, kids. So there are rides and activations and um, almost like an amusement park that's built from scratch. Um, we have huge areas of food and beverage where people can just come and watch the tennis on the giant screens. So that's where we get our large crowds from. So it very much is almost a 50-50 split of people who attend the Australian Open who are your traditional diehard tennis fans and another 50% who, um, who purely come for the, the environment that is created for the AO over the course of that 15, to 16, you know, 15 16 days. Um, so, yeah, look, as a... It is a big event. We, we do plan throughout the year and we really do start with what is it that we're trying to achieve for the AO forthcoming? Um, what are the, um, I mean, like I said, the tennis is almost a given. Well, it is a given. But what are the other things that we want to bring crowds into and how do we make an offering for all of the different types of cohorts that want to attend? Um, and then each of the teams will go away and start planning for the different areas that they want to activate and what it is that they want to offer up, and then we start working really closely in different working groups to work through those. So I'll, I'll sit on a project group that looks purely at the Bull Kids area um, out of Barramar near the city, um, and we'll look at what activations they want to do, whether that's pop tennis, whether it's um, you know other forms of, of racquetballs for that matter. So it can be even table tennis right through to 
um, like I said, pop tennis. Um, so yeah, we, we basically work through each of the spaces. We look at the offering and then we start to work on what we consider to be the overlay. So in other words, how are we creating these spaces that deliver on the expectation uh, for that particular year? Um, and our role in that really is to make sure that we have a very safety lens over it. Um, if you were to take an aerial shot of the Australian Open um, from this year, you will actually see there are almost highways created through the venue. Um, so, and, and this is probably more for context, but the site itself stretches right from the centre of CBD of Melbourne, 1.6 kilometres or one mile to the east of Melbourne. And if you look at, uh, again, an aerial shot of the site, we are surrounded by other sports, other sports and other sports stadiums. So we have the Melbourne Cricket Ground to the north of us, which is a 100,000-seat stadium. Um, the Taylor Swift, a couple of days ago, had 96,000 in there for three nights. So, um, you know, she's, she was able to fill it. Uh, and to the south of us, we have um, Melbourne's Rectangular Stadium, which is a soccer stadium. So it's not unusual for us in the precinct itself to have anywhere upwards of a, a couple of hundred thousand people around um, if there are clash events and things like that during the course of, of the AO. So we're 1.6 kilometres wide or one mile. We're about half a mile um, north-south. So we're quite elongated as a, as a venue. Um, and then the, the site itself is made up of a number of arenas. So it's not um, just Rod Labour Arena, which is the most famous one, host of the final of the Australian Open. We also have Margaret Court Arena, which is somewhat attached to that stadium. Um, we have John Kane Arena, which is another venue where we hold, hold tennis matches as well. And then three smaller external stadiums that don't have a, an operable roof. Um, and then we build about 7,500 temporary seats for some of the external courts as well. So all in all, um, you know, we can have upwards of 85,000 on site at any one time. All right, Lee Ross, you've just been telling us about many operational details regarding the Australian Open. Um, some are fascinating, many are terrifying. Um, I have questions. Bye. So we're good first, at making up answers. Well, and that's that's excellent because you know, welcome to the event industry podcast <laughs> listeners. We're all doing it. It's not just in North America. Um, Lee Ross, one of the things that you just described is a fairly common phenomenon that we see a lot in North America as well, which is even during a large event, which ostensibly has one purpose, in this case, tennis, mm -hmm. there are many other forms of entertainment going on on the same site, or in your case, an extremely elongated site. My first question is, do for, so now I'm thinking about planning. So the heading for this is Steve's planning questions. For the purpose of planning the Australian Open, given that you do different types of entertainment events within the same spaces during a short span of time, for planning purposes, do you divide the planners into you're going to handle everything that takes place in Rod Laver Arena? Or do you divide the planning groups into you're going to handle everything which is strictly tennis related and you over there um, wake up, you're going to do everything related to music and other non-tennis performances. 
or and is you're going to deal other... with children. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and that's where I'm going with this. Or, you know, do people divide up in terms of the crowd demographic? Or is there some other division for the purpose of planning this this sort of hydra-headed Huge. event that you hold? Yeah, it's a so, really good question. There, chew on that question. Yeah. Look, I always say there's there's the dreamers at the AO, you know, those who early in the year sit down and, and devise what the AO will like for the following year, and we try and change it up. But once we actually establish what it is that we're trying to achieve, we effectively break off into multiple working groups. Um, so, yes, there's the infrastructure and, and um, team who will get together and look at what infrastructure needs to go in place to deliver on the dream of what they're planning. Um, I head up a project group for, for safety and compliance which is completely separate um, to, say, our broadcast and media project group. So, yes, we do break into different groups to look after and deliver different things. We don't break them down into particular stadiums, per se, or particular zones, with the exception of one, which is the um, the children's ballpark down at one end, um, mainly because that doesn't really have too much influence over tennis itself. So I have what is probably an extremely stupid question. Um, when you say safety and compliance, uh, I have other friends in athletics and compliance can mean very, very different things. What does it mean in your responsibility list? That's a really good question because many years ago when I started at the Australian Open, it was purely a safety role. Um, today my role and, and the team's role has really expanded into compliance. And compliance for us is a permits to conduct the event. So we have this really strange thing in Australia called a, a, a place of public occupancy permit, which effectively means in Victoria alone, if you are going to conduct an event that meets certain criteria, um, which generally means it's surrounded by a fence or sold selling tickets to it and you have X amount of people attending, that you need to apply for a permit to conduct that event. So um, only about 18 months ago, that fell under my remit to obtain that permit. Um, and it looks at basically tying the different facilities that we have at Melbourne Park all into one. Because if you take Rod Laver Arena as an example, that holds 15,500 people. And then the concert mode, which is what it normally does for 360-odd days a year, um, it has facilities to cater for that number of people in simple terms. But because we tie in three different stadiums, a number of external courts and other other structures... Um, we need to demonstrate that we're providing adequate facilities and amenities to cope with 85,000 people in the one precinct. Okay? So um, if you were to go hold a community-based event at a greenfield site and you only had about five or 6,000 people attended, uh, it's not fenced, it's not ticketed, you're not required in Victoria and the state that we, we live in and where the AO is held to apply for a permit for public entertainment. But the larger scale events do and uh, quite rigorous in terms of what we need to demonstrate um, and in terms of amenity that we're providing. So these are things like adequate facilities for bathrooms, disability access, um, water fountains, uh, access and egress pathways, um, being able to get our emergency services vehicles inside the venue um, and not building infrastructure in the way of all of that. So um, there's a whole process that we go through. Um, And then adding on top of all of that is they then start to regulate quite heavily the temporary infrastructure that we put in on the site um, in terms of building compliance. So, yeah, there's a bit to the compliance piece to unpack, really, if, if we wanted to, to discuss that. But it's, um, 
yeah, there's there's some 300 odd structures that temporarily we build each year as well. So there's a significant temporary overlay to the Australian Open outside of what you see year round. This podcast is now four hours long, people. <laughs> it definitely could be. It definitely could be. Yeah. Get, get some sustenance. Um, so, Lee, I will tell you that permitting is a thing. Um, so it's not just in Australia. No, it's right. everywhere. And um, it ver at least in the U.S., which is what I'm familiar with, um, it varies very much from jurisdiction to jurisdiction how detailed, how attentive the permit application and review process is. So given that you know, there's no point trying to make sense of the American system, it varies too much. Tell us in Victoria, who monitors, to whom do you send a permit? And then once the permit is granted, because clearly it was, who monitors that and what do they actually do? Sure. So the permit that we apply for is actually mandated, strangely enough, under the building code. So the requirement to obtain a permit is mandated under the building code. The authority who regulates that permit is our local council or the City of Melbourne Municipal um, Council. The council will... Um, have a dedicated team who purely look after events. I mean, obviously, they look after a large space in the central business district of Melbourne. So there are lots of events and a, and a dedicated team. Um, and we make an application to them a couple of months out from the event, tell them how many people we want to come, uh, the duration of the event, that type of thing, just the normal particulars. Um, and then they will send out a team to start to look at what, firstly, the overlay, so what it is that we're actually trying to do. Uh, and then we are required by law to then send them um, documentation in relation to everything that we build. So for the permanent infrastructure, that's pretty straightforward. It's a straightforward occupancy permit. It's a permit that says, is this building safe for us to occupy? For the temporary infrastructure, it's split into two groups. One is infrastructure that is considered prescribed. Right? In other words, over 150 square metres, so a marquee that's over 150 square metres, grandstands that hold more than 40 people. There's a criteria that we need to, to go through. And then every other structure is considered non-prescribed. So we'll send them off for prescribed structures, um, a, an occupancy permit from the building authority to say this marquee is, is over 150 square metres and these are all the essential safety measures that need to be inside that structure and it could range depending on its use. Um, and then for non-prescribed structures, we will send them the engineering drawings, engineering computations, um, engineering certificates of compliance. And uh, in, depending on what it's made out of, things like fire material reports, um, you know, even down to the paint that we use to paint on the ramp to make it non-slip. So for any particular structure, and remember I briefly touched on that we, we build well over 300, 306 was the number for this year. But for each one of those, there may be some um, half a dozen attached documents that, that says it's compliant if built in a certain way. So they will go through and give us um, a review of that documentation. And if they've got concerns, issues, if there's gaps in the information that we've provided them, they would request further information. Um, so once we get to a point of having all 306 structures reviewed, documents are fine, um, which is sounds quite simple, but is less than simple. Um, that doesn't sound simple to me at no, all. No, it's not simple at all. <laughs> no, it's, no. Mark, Mark will, will 
absolutely vouch for this. It is the most painful process we could ever go through. The safety component of what we do um, in some ways pales into insignificance, really, in terms of the, the, the process of getting compliance um, with our documentation. So let's assume for a moment we roll forward and we get to that final couple of weeks before the Australian Open and all of our paperwork is in fine working order, which it, you know, sometimes we struggle to get to. Uh, the team from the city of Melbourne, consisting of about 15 building inspectors, will come live with us for two weeks at Melbourne Park. Um, we feed and water them, make them happy, uh, and then we conduct a, a series of inspections um, over the course of that two weeks to sign those structures off. Uh, and have our independent engineers come through and assess that the structure has been built in accordance with the drawings. It is not too dissimilar to building a house. Um, you know, if you if you want to build a home and it's on a greenfield side, you have your architect draw it, you have your engineer provide your engineering to say it's not going to blow over in a stiff breeze. Uh, you build your building and the building surveyor comes out and assesses that structure and says, yes, it's been built in accordance with the drawings and it's been built in accordance with the building code and here's a fancy certificate to occupy that particular structure. So there are two very separate things. So one is the, the permit to actually occupy the structure and then overriding all of that is that place of public occupancy permit that I spoke to just before, um, which typically, and this is the scary part, typically lands on the likes of mine, Martin's desk about um, six or seven hours before the event is due to commence. Yes, yes. There was a time, that's, and this, that's actually, not stressful at all. Not stressful at all. I, I do recall a time about five or six years ago, we were waiting on the permit, and the permit actually hadn't come through on email, and we were due to open the gates. And uh, that particular day, it was raining quite heavily, and I delayed opening the gates by five minutes because I hadn't actually received the permit in my inbox. So, um. We were on the loud howlers at the front gates of the Australian Open saying, unfortunately, just due to the weather, we were just going to hold gates for five minutes. Um, the weather was a very convenient excuse for the fact that we didn't have a document. That was You, you had a good scapegoat right yeah, there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oof, yeah, the, other thing, the other thing there is that there is a, a person, John Robinson, who is dedicated to this process. Yeah, that is his single task is to get the compliance documents get the structures inspected, work with the local government authority and get that certificate. And John does an amazing job doing that. It's a thankless task of dealing with paperwork and delivering messages that are not pleasant for people saying, I need a fire material report on that paint that you've used on that thing. Oh, we don't remember what paint we used. Mm, wrong answer, <laughs> try again. Yeah. Um, and, and John who's also on leave this week and can't be with us and is an apology, um, does an amazing job in, in extracting that information from the various people constructing and fitting out marquees and building ramps and all of those sorts of things and working with the engineers that provide the documents and then working with the City of Melbourne to try and um, get that all into a neat little bundle and get it all signed off. It is a thankless task and John does an amazing job with that. Yeah, 100%. I was just going to say, I mean, if you look at the documents that we receive and the level of compliance first time up, I would say the level of compliance is at about 40%. So we have these really highly qualified individuals um, who inherently give us documents that are, um, you know, lacking the required information that it should have. 
So it and then is you a get to chase job. it. One hundred percent. The other thing that we do with those documents, which might lead us into a slightly um, different place here, is that every one of those engineering certificates has a wind rating for every one of those three hundred structures. Great, because that's where I wanted to go next. Yeah, you've please. you've like picked the out before. the stuff. You've you've built it. It was approved. It was great. And then yep. wind gusts of whatever kilometers yep. per hour are not allowed come through. Yeah. What so happens we, then? We, we take all of those documents. We take the wind rating for each and every one of those structures and we put them into our document. So we know that at 80 kilometers per hour, these are the structures that we need to vacate or at 40 kilometers an hour, these are the umbrellas that we need to take down and take out of service. That document sits with Lee, with myself, with venue control. So we've got a dedicated control room, of course, full of people with cameras and skills and expertise and phones and contact to whoever they need to talk to. Um, Lee has stints in, in VCC. Um, so we have, so venue control, VCC. A venue control centre. Yep, we, we it gets called different things in Australia. It, it has many names: EOCs and ECCs. And but the, the the particularities of the site here, it's called VCC because venue control centre. Um, but yeah, that document sits with those people. We've got people monitoring it. We've got access to the weather bureau. You'd be so excited. So Australia has its own weather service. And we have representatives that we have contact with so that if there is wind coming, we've got access to that information and we can make those decisions proactively ahead of time rather than being reactive. At the same time, we've got people on the ground. So part of the Pope conditions are that we need one safety officer for every 10,000 people on site. That's specified in the building code or it comes from the Pope. So we have a roster of five, five safety officers on site during most days and three to four on evening shifts that are out on the ground playing whack-a-mole, looking for problems, looking for issues. That's their single task is to be out and about on the ground looking for things going wrong, things that need to be addressed, things that need to be fixed, including wind, including rain because if it starts raining and we've built structures on top of drains we end up with flooding issues so yeah we've got safety officers out on the ground doing that task um but yeah wind plan gets built yeah. as leading into the event so that we know at 80 kilometers an hour these are the structures and 80 is one of the magic numbers for us most of our structures are uh, there's a number at that at 80 kilometers an hour they need to be vacated. Honestly, if it's blowing 80 kilometres an hour, it's pretty horrible. What's that? Um, yeah. About that 50 miles an hour-ish. Yeah, thereabouts. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Wind is, I would put wind down as the single greatest risk to the event outside of all the other weather events you can have, like rain, etc. And I say that because... Um, when you've got a lot of temporary infrastructure and a, temporary, a lot of temporary overlay, and that's even things down to signage, those become missiles in high wind. And, um, you know, inevitably we, we try and construct our entrances with, you know, you know, pedestrian barriers, and then we don't like the look of a pedestrian barrier, so we tend to, you know, put a cover over a pedestrian barrier. That becomes then a sale, and before we know it, we, uh, we have objects 
in high wind flying around the place. So, you know, we talked about a little bit before about planning. One of the things that we are highly cognizant of in terms of the planning is making sure we design down to the bolt. So if somebody comes along in the overlay and I can see or we can see pedestrian barriers that are positioned at the entrances, we will ask pertinent questions like, are you intending to place covers on those? And if you are, then what does the ballast look like for those barriers through to the table, the umbrella, the awning, the entrance structure. So we literally pull apart through the course of the year every structure that is intended to be built, understand its purpose, understand whether it actually really needs to be there and then to look at it, its effect in things like rain, high wind. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we would experience on average, and this is just a very anecdotal over the last 10 years, a few days where we'd get, you know, sort of 50 kilometre an hour winds. Um, <laughs> Because we are operating in and around existing structures too, probably one of the greatest risks is the direction of the wind and whether that wind is gusting and how the buildings surrounding our temporary structures are going to impact on how that wind moves. So there are certain pockets of the site that inherently are more windy than others. Um, so, yes, there's definitely a process in place to have the understanding of, you know, the engineers told us that this thing should stand up in 80 kilometre an hour winds we then look at well, where we're placing that particular structure on the site and what material effect the location has on those wind gusts. Um, but then it probably even more importantly, we have the Bureau on site or the Bureau of Meteorology on site and we have a number of um, anemometers that positioned on the arena roofs and things like that. So um, weather is a constant for us. It is once we get up and running and you know, we bed down the first few days of any teething issues, the reality is we have the weather on a giant TV screen near our desk and it is constantly monitored um, for anything that may or may not impact on the event. Steve and I have so many questions. We've been going back and forth. Sorry, guys, a little inside baseball as to what to what to ask about next because we're like, what about this? What about that? <laughs> we're very excited. Um, so I'm going to go back to the wind thing, though. So let's say sure. you've got 50 to 60 kilometer per hour wind and, and you're preemptively vacating those structures and it's it's one of the days near near the final so you have so many people there where what do you do with them where do they go yeah i mean if, if you're in, you're inside the arenas so both margaret court and rod labor arenas while separate arenas are uh, semi-attached to each other so we have a, a huge footprint there that we can move the best part of thirty-five thousand people to Across the other side of the precinct, we have John Payne Arena, which holds about 10,500 people. So there's another a large indoor space that we could move them to. Um, the, the reality is if we're ever having an evacuation for something like wind, there are certain sides of the venue that we could utilise to move people to that are inherently more safe than the open side. Um, and we can use the indoor facilities to move them inside. So that's, that's the good news story. The, the bad side of it is that a lot of the structures that are going to be impacted on wind tend to be our temporary structures and they tend to be corporate spaces for our partners. So there's a level of sensitivity around um, making a decision around uh, asking our high-paying corporate partners um, to vacate their venue, seating their wonderful lunch and uh, go indoors to another location. So... 
what I always think is we're never likely to have a full evacuation of the site. There's never, you know, in the history of the last hundred years, never been a weather event that's come through that's going to mandate that we would need to move the best part of 85,000 people off-site. Um, the reality of something like wind tour, it doesn't really matter if you move them off-site, they're still faced with the same dangers in some ways. Um, so what we would look to do is move them indoors as much as possible if we had a significant weather event. The biggest risk, actually, is how we communicate that to 85,000 people. So there's a number of mechanisms that we have to do that, giant video screens, the voice of God, what I mean by that is the audio system across the venue. Um, you know, we've got some wonderful technology with ap applications and the AO website, things like that, and the AO apps that we can use to push messages out. So we're constantly reviewing um, not only what we would do and desktoping those exercises, you know, playing them out and saying, if, if this happened, what would we do? Um, but I've always seen the biggest, the biggest uh, challenge for us is how we communicate that in a standardised and effective way to a large number of people who are not interconnected with things like radios and WhatsApp groups and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, most of the time we, would, we will desktop partial evacuations or movements of people out of particular areas, not the whole entire site. Okay. So one of the things when I, I was doing my Google research was about how you guys had record-breaking crowds. You had over a million people over the course of your event. Congratulations. That's fantastic. It looked like about 200,000 more people than last year. Correct. Um, <laughs> so I'm assuming that you weren't taken hugely by surprise by that. How did that change your planning, you know, understanding that your crowd would be even even bigger? And did you encounter any challenges from having more people on site than previous years? Albeit that we had nearly um, a couple hundred thousand extra than we've ever had before. In retrospect, looking back, we, we probably had the cleanest AO that we've ever had. Um, so coming out of the pandemic and, and all the trials and tribulations that that posed for the event, um, and we did hold the event during the pandemic as well, which is a, 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 you know, a whole other podcast probably and a whole other discussion. Um, we weren't real sure what it would do to the crowds this year, but we did have some indicators of other large-scale events in Australia that some of the crowds were returning. Um, I go back to AO 2023, and it was probably the first AO post-pandemic. We did have a return to crowds. We are able to hit that 900,000 mark uh, for the first time in a few years. Um, but we were in Australia were still very much behind on some of the international visitors. So a lot of international cohorts still hadn't returned. And it wasn't because the borders were closed and things like that. It was more just around uh, airlines getting up and running, um, trying to restore back to pre-pandemic um, flight schedules. So this year was the first year that we really had a very clean um, return to normality. Um, and, in, and it manifests itself, like you said, into uh, well over a million people coming through the gates. So did it pose any challenges to us? Not more than usual. Uh, again, if you have a look at an aerial shot of Melbourne Park, we're a funny venue in that. On one, all on the northern side, we have a huge railway line. So we can't gain access and egress trucks and deliveries, anything on the northern side of the venue. And then we are bordered by two significant arterial roads into the city. So... Our ability to grow the footprint of the event is the, is the real challenge for us now. Like we're almost at capacity where we have no, um, no space to move into without really re-engineering what we do and how we do it. Um, so that's going to be the challenge in the years to come. 
it's a challenge from an emergency management point of view because clearly if you've got a tiny little footbridge over one railway line on one side and two major arterial roads into the city on either side of you, um, both to the west and to the south, um, then where do you move people? So I'm constantly having that debate with our planners around this space needs to be reserved for our ability to be able to egress people from the venue in the event that something significant happens. And then, of course, you've got the commercial team who are coming across and saying, well, actually, no, we want to sell that space because we can make a lot of money on it and we can get another 10,000 people through the gate. So there's, there is this push-pull factor that goes on. Um, but, you know, everybody understands that, that safety is important. Our ability to manage emergency situations should they arise is really critical. So there's generally not too much of a, um, a situation where I've walked out of those conversations feeling like I didn't get what I needed to get. Um, so, yeah, it's a real challenge. We, we, Like I said, a million people over the course of 15 days, it's averaging about 80,000 people. Um, the one good thing for us is that they're not all here at the same time. And we open up the gates at 10 a.m. in the morning and our evening session doesn't start until 7 o'clock at night. So um, you almost have two groups that come through each day. So you've got the day session and the night session. However, and this is a big however, uh, there is a crossover point where you have the day session leaving and the night session coming in, and you've got to be out of, for a proportion of time, accommodate both cohorts. Um, and more importantly, if the day session runs over, so you have night session ticket holders standing outside waiting to go in at seven o'clock, but the day session matches haven't finished, then they uh, will hold and, and be able to stay inside the arena until that day session is finished. So there was an instance this year where one of our day sessions ran to 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. So for two hours, I've got the best part of, you know, 15, 16,000 people standing at the doorstep, um, kindly banging to get in saying, well, I didn't buy a ticket to... Uh, to, to a session that commences at 8.30 at night and for me to be here at 3 o'clock in the morning. But um, So they're the challenges with tennis. There is no definitive finish time. I bet they were so happy to stand out there in the won't. evening heat. 100%. <laughs> they were not happy. Um, but it is, it is one of the anomalies of tennis is that tennis has no defined finish time. So you often, you may often hear, and there are matches that stretch um, into the wee hours of the morning. You know, there were one match this year, it finished at 3.30 a.m. So, uh, you know, huge. So I, I have a logistical question just because you've raised the idea of people queued up for a long period of time because you know that tennis doesn't have a clock. So since you know that that is a use the lawyer term this is common law so it applies for you also the oh. reasonably foreseeable occurrence given that you're in a clockless environment do you have people who will go along the queue waiting outside the gates with things to drink things to eat um, opportunities to buy merch so that they don't have to first do that when they get inside what do you do for people who are waiting and they don't want to be waiting well, the good news is that we won't hold them external to the venue. Um, oh, so you'll let them in? Yes. Yeah. But if you have an evening session ticket, you can gain access to the grounds anytime from 5 p.m. So if you're an evening session ticket holder, you know your arena seat's not till 7 o'clock, but from 5 o'clock onwards, you can still gain access to the venue. The only time that becomes a real challenge for us is if we start to cap out at that 85,000 on site because we're only permitted to have 85,000 on site. The good news in that, though, is that we typically have enough leave from the day session 
to accommodate the crowds coming in for the ninth session to never exceed the cap. That being said, external to the venue, yes, there is food and beverage offerings external to the venue. There are amenities that people can use. Um, we are really, really close to the CBD. So a lot of our patrons come in via that avenue anyway. Um, and most will be aware of where the situation is on the seats, sorry, within the arenas that they have seats. So they'll understand that the match is running late. And most of them are somewhat tennis people. So they can look at the score and go, you know, they're, they're late it's in the third yet. set, but they're looking <laughs> like going five. This is going to be a long night, right? So most of them are fairly well educated on tennis days. Um, but absolutely, we strongly encourage people to gain access to the venue, use the amenities that are on site. Um, they've got free access to drinking water and things like that um, through our permitting process. So, um, and most will be quite happy to go sit in Garden Square or Grand Slam Oval and you know, soak in the atmosphere, enjoy the amenity that's provided, the food and beverage options, etc. So, yeah, it's less of a problem, really. Yeah, it's probably actually a marketer's dream because you've got <laughs> people who definitely will stay. They can't watch their tennis yet. So what else do they have to do? Buy Breaking things. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And our merchandise sales this year were through the roof. Our food and beverage sales this year were through the roof. And it's not only a combination of just the amount of people coming through the games. But actually, we can see when matches are running late and you do have that crossover, that the data tells us that we have a huge spike in the food and beverage sales and then the merchandise sales. So the reality is you're right. They will find something to do, and that typically involves putting their hand in their pocket and spending money, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Do you guys, uh, in your communications plans and, and communications with the ticket holders ahead of time, do you give them a heads up about stuff like that? Like you're not going to be able to take your seat until the previous match finishes, but stuff's available, that sort of thing? 100%. And we also push messages out to our ticket holders that there's interruptions at the public transport system or there are major road impacts coming into the venue. And then I think, you know, if you purely look at um, event operations, we don't look at our precinct as being the four walls of the venue itself. You know, it stretches some five miles external to the venue and understanding what's going on at the broader context. Um, so if there are activations, sorry, if there are demonstrations in the CBD on a particular political issue and that's impacting crowds getting into the site, there are messages that we would push to our, to our patrons to say, hey, if you're coming in this evening, I would avoid going down into this particular part of town. It doesn't happen very often, but we have that capacity to do it. Similarly, if we have extreme weather in terms of heat, we're able to push a, a proactive message out to our patrons. Is that where you were going with this, Dan? Oh, you know what I love? Every single time I'm about to ask a question, you'd start to answer it before I even say it. It's amazing. So I guess the, the, the example probably from this year was we had a um, tram incident where a tram took out the overhead cabling coming towards the venue, which then managed to park itself across two lanes of traffic and external to the venue, outside our control. But we became aware of that event, probably slightly before venue control did actually. Um, and we, well, one of our safety officers, me, um, ended up down there. And the first call I made was, we need our custom service stuff. So the, on, on top of the, the, the kind of messaging via apps and screens and voice of God and all those sorts of things, we also have a number of customers, well, there's hundreds of customer service staff that are here to provide to the customers information, service, you know, here's some sunscreen, go that way to get to your venue, your ticket, 
we'll let you here, not there. Um, but yeah, my initial call was I'm going to need six to eight customer service staff down here to be able to help wrangle the crowds um, and start dealing with you know the tram that was parked across the way, dealing with the police, dealing with fire services outside our venue, but it's still affecting our event. So um, those sorts of events that happen adjacent to the precinct, if it's not within the precinct, are stuff that we stay aware of and try and keep on top of as well. And if that means we need to deploy some customer service staff outside our footprint, then that's what we we, we do if we need to. It's interesting when it's you talk fantastic. about communication, Danny always because there's we have a standard suite of comms that go out for a whole range of things. There are about three hundred and sixty odd giant video screen messages and audios that we would we would communicate to our patrons. And they are pre populated prior to the event. So in other words, if I make a, a call to the control room to say, I need a message up on the screen saying it's hot, can you remind the patrons to start drinking more water? I'm seeing an influx of visitors to our first aid locations, of which there are seven across the site. You know, the data's telling me we've got a problem here. You know, people are starting to wilt a bit in the sun. Then we will, I will um, make a call and we will run those video messages more frequently. So they are on a natural cycle through the venue. Um, and we are one of the, you know, to put it into a bit of context, but we're probably the largest user of LED screens in the Southern Hemisphere for our event. Right? There's kilometres and kilometres of LED screens, which provides us an enormous amount of capacity to communicate various messages. Now, that may be ticketing, it may be ticketing upgrades, it may be impending weather, it may be just drink more water, it might be, hey, look, this tram's down, find an alternate, alternate way of getting home that particular day. So... Um, but you utilise that technology to push out the message that you want and to get people to behave in a certain way. And it's you know almost instantly on a really extreme weather day of heat and we push that messaging out, you can see the numbers start to decrease later on in the afternoon because people are applying sunscreen, they are wearing a hat, they are seeking shade and they are drinking plenty of water. Um, I roll back to... Uh, AO 2017, we, we at Melbourne Park experienced seven days in excess of 40 degrees straight. So, so I wanted to ask, uh, one of the things that I researched was the extreme heat policy for the players and the five different phases about that. Could you talk a little bit about that? And we mostly have been talking about yeah. the crowds, but this is for the, the, in my world, the performers themselves. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So the extreme heat policy was a collaboration between, um, I was heavily involved in it, we got the Australian team doctor, it happens to be the Australian team doctor for the Olympic team is our head doctor, uh, and in collaboration with one of the universities in New South Wales. And it was on the back of um, a lot of player um, concern, um, a lot of media concern years ago around that 40 days or having seven or eight days over 40 degrees back in 2017. Um, and that the players really wanted a heat stress scale that, sorry, wanted to apply a, a temperature reading that said if it gets to X that they wouldn't take the court or if they did take the court that they would finish the set before coming off court. So before you go any farther, for, for our American audience, uh, 40 degrees Celsius is 104 Fahrenheit, just in case you weren't making that change in your head. Go on. It, it's hot, yeah. So to have, yeah. So to have so many consecutive days. So this, there was a lot of player feedback on, um, you know, at what point do we stop playing tennis? Our regulators um, here in Victoria, from a safety perspective, your OSHA 
were having huge concerns with us around our staff being out in that heat. Um, you know, at the Australian Open, we use ball kits. So children between the ages of 14 and 16 to retrieve the balls. So there's a lot of you know external pressure coming in on the venue saying, is it appropriate for us to be conducting a, you know, um, a tennis event in days that are over 40 degrees or 104 degrees Fahrenheit? Um, and it was the, the reality is there were very um, reasonable questions to be asking. So we work really closely with a couple of the universities in New South Wales or around Sydney, um, our head team doctor and myself, and we developed what they call the heat stress scale. Now, the heat stress scale is not just a straight reading of temperature and degrees Celsius and or Fahrenheit. It takes into consideration things like wind, wind direction, um, humidity um, to give us a scale. And that scale is then displayed in the playing spaces to let the playing group know of where we're at in regards to those sort of one to five. And if five being the extreme, you know, four being high, et cetera. So it's a very loose scale. Um, and for the, you know, this year we only had one stop in play during the entire tournament. It was in the first week where the extreme heat policy kicked in. Um, and that is a decision between the tournament director and referee and the, and the doctor to make a judgment call on whether they, where they sit on that, that um, extreme heat scale. So it's not, a, it's not like you get to 34 degrees, which would be on or around, I don't know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and as soon as you hit 80, you stop. That's not how the heat stress scale works. It is based on a range of factors, and, and the players, effectively, the players' ability to be able to disperse heat from their body. So if you've got a really humid day, and it's 40 degrees, and it's not a breath of wind out there, you are going to hit extreme on the heat stress scale far quicker than you would if it's a nice, dry 40-degree day with a cool, stiff breeze blowing from the south. Uh, if that makes any sense. So, um, yeah, it's not a not a black and white uh, thing. It's very much, um, well, it is for the doctor and for the tournament referee and tournament director, but it's their decision to make about when they cease play. One of the other things I would call out is there are three arenas at Melbourne Park that have operable routes. So the question is obviously asked, well, if you stop play because of extreme heat on the outside courts, do you stop play on the indoor courts? And the answer to that is, yes, we do. Um, we will stop playing all courts until such time as the roof is closed. But one of the things that we have to make sure that we always do is offer equal conditions to all players. I mean, each of these players could be playing for upwards of $4.5 million Australian, Australian dollars, which is about $3 million US dollars. Um, so if you're a player who wasn't fortunate enough to be scheduled that particular day on inside court with a nice closed air-conditioned arena with an operable roof, but instead stuck with court 15 down the back in the blazing sun, well, then, you know, the, it has to be equal for all. So once a heat stress scale kicks in, all matches cease, all players come off, and the three operable rules will be closed, and they'll recommence matches in those arenas only. So, yeah, that's basically so how the heat stress scale works. Podcast listeners, let me briefly reintroduce our Yes, uh, we have Lee Ross and Martin Luters talking about the Australian Open. Um, and guys, I will tell you that one of the things that I am sort of gobsmacked about is how similar the considerations are that you have for your event um, to major events in North America with which I'm familiar. Um, 
honestly, I'm not hearing that there are radically different considerations. Um, you know, wind, heat, uh, safety, messaging, you know, planning. These are all pretty standard fare for what Danielle and I talk about on the Event Safety Podcast all the time. Um, one term, however, that you used that I had not heard before is venue control center. So let me tee up what I heard that was different and then ask you if there's just a terminology difference or a substantive difference. Um, in the United States, we have something called the incident command system. And in our command centers, which sound like the place where decisions are made and decision makers receive information, process it, and then tell other people what their decisions are so they can go be implemented. Um, for us, that would be called a command center or an incident command center. And the person at the top of the decision-making chain is often referred to as an incident commander. Mm -hmm. It sounded to me like that's what you were talking about with your venue control center. Is it? We buy them the same day. Ah, yes. Yes. I'm still looking yes. for something that's really different that you do. Okay. We can, well, we can, we can unpick that a little bit in that we sit under an Australian standard for this um, rather than the um, FEMA standards that you guys run so oh my um, goodness martin luters you're using american names of things i'm impressed I already a long time listener first time caller um <laughs> but uh we so we sit under an, a, an australian standard for that which um rather than a we have a chief warden is the phrase that becomes the the grand poobah of the event um the other system which is fairly similar to the um is what's known as AIMS in Australia, but it's quite similar, where we have an incident controller, um, which tends to be the, the um, command structure that the emergency services use in Australia, which is how they are differentiated. Um, so that a chief warden sits underneath and within a command structure from emergency services. So there's a little bit of technical differences, but essentially, yes, there's a room with lots of screens and people making decisions Yes, they're one and the same. And look, we're, we're extremely fortunate too to have a lot of the emergency services um, within that room throughout the duration of the event. So our, our local police force, Victoria Police, we have the federal police have a presence in this space. We get our fire and emergency services or fire rescue Victoria in the space. We have ambulance Victoria within the space. We get our um, first aid providers have a, a desk at the table. Um, and then our Venue operators, Melbourne Olympic Park, have a range of people in there. The security team have a, a space in there. So it is literally row after row um, within that control room um, for everybody to be in, in close proximity to each other to make really good decisions should the decisions need to be made. And there are decisions being made in there constantly about a whole range of things. Um, tennis has a presence in there as it relates to the event. So, for instance, and then this is typically how this would work, is that we would get notification from the Bureau to say there's a weather event coming through. Uh, the Chief Warden will consult with the people in the space to say, well, what is this weather event going to look like in terms of impacting the event? They may or may not make a request to us to shut the roof. We, the tennis representative within the space, will make contact with the 
with the chief referee from tennis and say, our advice is for you to stop play very shortly and shut the roof, as an example. So, And then there are other decisions being made off in different other areas of that particular room which relate to their areas of responsibility. Um, so, yes, it operates fundamentally the same way that, that you would operate in the US. Uh, yes, it has a different term, um, slightly different titles or, or tabards on the back of everybody's shoulders, but fundamentally the same thing. Um, but to go back to your question, Steve, in terms of things that may operate differently, um, I think possibly one of those things is our relationship with the regulator. Um, so in Victoria, WorkSafe is the regulator that um, looks after health and safety across all workplaces. Um, we have a, an extremely good relationship um, with the regulator. They are on site very regularly um, to come and inspect what we do and how we do it. During um, the event, during bump out, they were here for two or three days. Um, and in the lead in, they, they're on site and they bring usually four inspectors or more. And they literally walk around the site with, with, and look at what we're doing and ask questions and provide guidance, advice. But it is a very collaborative relationship that we have with the regulator rather than a, a, an adversarial one. Gosh, that sounds nice. <laughs> oh, look, it, it is. It really is a, it is a great relationship that we have um, with the regulator and, and they bring, um, they have a specialist that exists in the event space, but they have specialists that sit across building and um, they have multidisciplinary um, inspectors. Then they, they come as much to learn about the event space as they do to kind of regulate us and and ask us questions. But having said that, you know, they do find things and we're more than happy to talk to them and find solutions rather than it being a come and get a smack on the knuckles for doing stuff wrong. Um, it is a great relationship that we have with the regulator. So that's a maybe a slight difference to the way OSHA does its thing. That's we're a different podcast. <laughs> That's that's a one longer conversation. Be, yeah, one day there may be an OSHA inspector walking in on Danielle or on one of my clients, and so we're not going to respond to that comment, Martin. But you're pretty All right, funny. we'll move on. The the yes. other one that, that I think um, might be an interesting point of difference is um, the fatigue management. In that every contractor that had a presence on site this year was required to submit a fatigue management plan to us and be assessed of how they are going to manage because we essentially become a 24 hour a day operation because once we finish matches at two or three o'clock in the morning we then have to restock bars food and bev overnight clean the venues and so at 7 a.m the next morning we start talking to people about we need no vehicle movements on site and by 8 a.m we have no vehicle movements at all on site. So no buggies, no scooters, no everything, anything else has to be done with a trolley. Um, so there are people who, you know, we, we ask them questions about how many hours are your staff working and how are you managing your staff? Like heavy vehicles are regulated in Victoria or in Australia about how many hours of driving you can do per week. Um, and we ask similar questions of our contractors about how many hours of work are your staff doing and how can we how can we manage that better so that we're not having people working 20 plus hours a day. So that's 
don't know if that's a point of difference, but that's something that we implemented this year to address an issue that, that we became aware of, that people are doing insane hours. And that's the nature of the events industry. We know that, but that doesn't make it right. Um, we can we can it's ask great questions. That you're addressing it. Yeah, we can ask questions and find out. And some of those people hadn't thought about it and they went, you know what? Yeah, we need to do this better. And maybe the plumber is a good example of that where he he used to do a lot of that work himself and he ended up with two offsiders this year to, to manage his load um, better. Um, did he was it perfect? No, but are we taking steps in the right direction? And I think that's with all safety stuff, we can't fix it overnight. But if you can nudge people in the right direction, um, that's all we can do. Given that these contractors work, you know, 11 months of the year elsewhere, if we can ask them questions about, can you do what you do better? Um, that's about all we can do, or less bad, as became the phrase for the for this tournament. Can you do that slightly <laughs> less bad? <laughs> yeah. Well, podcast listeners, there's a... There's, There's a, a punctuation mark. Um, so I, I'm going to briefly give a plug, podcast listeners. If you like this sort of conversation where you learn how to do things slightly less bad and um, hear about things that, well, are said in a different way, but substantively are just another reminder that, yeah, the basic principles that we talk about apply everywhere. Um, if you like and value conversations like this one, um, please like this podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, you can like it. You can recommend a friend to listen to it. We love our analytics and we need that um, so that we can justify spending our time doing this way to our spouses and colleagues. So please do recommend <laughs> the Event Safety Podcast to your friend. Like it on your podcast app and Danielle, take us home. All right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always find us at podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Find us on social media or check out the website, also eventsafetyalliance.org. We'd love to hear and interact with you all. Martin and Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any final words to take us out? Uh, no, other than to say uh, thank you so much for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we could talk all day. Uh, and and, yeah. and look, you know, given the opportunity, I, I have no doubt that we could find a whole range of subjects to talk on. I'm sure we could. <laughs> um, to our colleagues in the US, if you're um, ever in Australia, by all means visit Australian Open. Um, you know, look us up. We'll be happy to sort you out. And, uh, you know, I've always looked at, um, you know, how we can best share safety knowledge across the industry, especially as it relates to events, such a specific space. Um, you know, we, I've, I'm really fortunate. I've got a wonderful team, um, lots of large events in Australia. So I'm able to draw on a good resource of skilled, qualified, um, event-minded people. Um, but I don't add whether there's the same stresses in the US in terms of finding good people. But, um, yeah, look, if you're in Australia, by all means, um, especially in Melbourne, look us up and we're happy to entertain you. Yeah, likewise. Thank, really appreciate the, the invitation to come and speak. Um, and like Lee said, there's there's no there's no secrets in safety. That we we all do the same things, whether it's in the US or whether it's here. The 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 outcome is the same, and and the relationships that that we build with our contractors, I think, is the key to to delivering the event that we deliver. Fantastic. Well, I've learned a lot. Thank you both very much. Um, I will definitely look you up when I make it to Australia one day. 
All right, everyone, stay safe.